Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. Well, hello and welcome back to the Film School podcast. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with the one and only Andrew Cash. Now, if you are a fan of the horror genre, or if you just like watching behind-the-scenes documentaries about filmmaking itself, you've probably heard of Andrew Cash's work with Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy, a four-hour-plus documentary on the making of the Nightmare on Elm Street series, or you've checked out his documentary, Crystal Lake Memories, that he worked on with Daniel Ferrans. He is absolutely incredible and has released a ton of documentaries and making of shorts about different films throughout history. But he's also a director in his own. He's worked on shows like DC's Legends of Tomorrow, directed the This Means War short in Tales of Halloween, and he's edited shows like The Flash, Dallas, Revolution, and Beavis and Butthead. He's a fantastic guest, and we talk about so many interesting things on today's episode. Be sure to listen to the entire episode, and remember, if you want to continue this conversation, you can always head over to the Film Schooled official discussion group over on Facebook and keep the conversation going with other film fans. All right, guys, let's get into my interview with Andrew Cash. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Film Schooled podcast. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited to chat with you a bit. And everybody who knows the show knows I like to go back to the very beginning and know what made you fall in love with movies. And we actually share a very similar background in the sense that we both grew up in very fundamentalist Christian circles. And so it impeded some of our, our movie watching in the beginning and some of the films we'd have to catch up on later. But what was your first introduction to movies? Like, where'd you get the bite to fall in love with the with movies, storytelling, all the above? I think the only non-children's programming I was allowed to watch as a kid were the first Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark. You could do worse. (laughs) Really good movies to watch over and over and over and over again. So that's like where the bug was initially uh, bit, but I wasn't really allowed to watch anything else. So there was like this whole world of forbidden fruit that I couldn't really see. And over the course of the next like, The first 15 years of my life, as I got older and got access to more things, like just inhaled it all. But yeah, was not allowed to watch a whole hell of a lot, but that just made it everything else more enticing. Yeah, no, I, we couldn't watch any R-rated movies. I didn't go to theaters till I turned 18. So like I'm catching up. People are always like, you've not seen the matrix. You've not seen this. And I'm like, dude, I got to catch up. I was like, I got, I got a slow start in life. I, what was your first introduction to horror because my my first introduction i was probably fifth grade watching psycho that was my first real horror movie which again great first uh introduction to to the horror genre but what was yours because i know it's had a big influence on you weirdly enough like old disney movies are the weird gateway drugs for a lot of people there's all sorts of like creepy trippy shit and all the old Walt disney cartoons so those were like snuck into me a little bit as at an early age and then as i got a little older and i 
we got a little freer from the closed off fundamentalist groups. I started doing Hale stuff like Gremlins and Joe Dante movies and old monster flicks like the Universal films. And then it all culminated with Alien when I was like 11 years old that I watched and it just changed my life and world forever. And that's that's a movie where everyone has that one experience that like really takes hold and starts the full blown obsession. And I think alien was that for me, for sure. Was it purely an obsession with watching movies? Because I know that's obviously there's a point at which like movies stop being an activity and become like an actual passion. Like I got to watch movies. I want to check out this filmography and so on. Or was it also what sparked the passion to say, I want to be on the other side of the camera trying to work on projects like this. Yeah, the other side of the camera didn't come until later, but the uh, just the passion for the art form and just seeing as much as you can, like really connected with my little kid ADHD brain. And then when you're like in Florida, closed off from the world, in a weird way, it's like a window out into the world. And that just like, that hook was like ingrained in as for as long as I can remember. And yeah, just connected with it all on a super primal level. And I guess if you want to get really like psychological about it my love of morbid stuff and subject matters growing up in that sort of an environment mm-hmm. when you tell when, i've thought about it a lot when you tell a child as soon as they can form conscious thought you know that if you disobey you're gonna go burn in a lake of fire for all eternity that probably has some weird impact on your brain probably um that i, I don't want to say twists it but leads you down these kind of bizarre roads that other people think might be strange. Maybe it's a coping me- mechanism. You I don't know. We, you, you get out, you could psychoanalyze it all freaking day, but, but that probably played its part. Right. I, 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 I gotta ask, cause like I said, we grew up so similar and I'm curious, like when you first started encountering some of these movies, did you have any resistance yourself to, Oh, I shouldn't be watching this. Or did you have this kind of internal thing or was it just like full bore? Oh, like yeah. I'm into this. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think, yeah that, I think it takes years. <laughs> I think it takes years to work through that and shed yourself of that. Cause again, it's like the forbidden fruit. That's sort of, Oh, I want a little taste. All right. I got to have another taste and another taste. And, and part of, even when you're like, for us eighties kids, like something is silly and dumb as there's a lot of the Friday the 13th sequels. Right. You've got, those were, you felt rebellious watching them. It's silly to look back on now. But at the time, I think like part of the appeal was the fact that you weren't supposed to be watching any of this stuff. That was like where I think half the thrill came from. And I think that I think if you talk to anybody and I don't know, like with younger generations, I don't know if it's, it's that same appeal because you have everything available at the touch of your fingertips this stuff you had to seek out and find and sneak around to watch. It's not like you can just like any kid can just hop on their phone and push a button and watch it. Right. So that was like the, the thrill of reading about it and discovering it and chasing it down and doing it with say slumber parties or something like that when the adults have gone to bed. Like that's, that was all, that was the appeal of all of it. So I'm wondering if the newer generations have that same thrill that we get out of there that we got back in the day doing that. It's almost like ritualistic. Yeah. I think I grew up in a different decade. So I grew up in the two thousands going to high school. So it's, it's for me, it looked different, but it was still that same. Like my parents aren't going to buy this movie. They're not going to, 
purchase this. It was like the one friend in the group who like had unlimited access to download whatever he wanted. Who's like, let's yeah. watch Saw on the way to a basketball <laughs> tournament. And I remember it's funny. One of my friends who grew up in the same kind of environment talks about that. He's like, we, he's, I remember one time we went to this basketball tournament and we all watched, we watched the entire Saw series, like all through the night. And then didn't sleep at all that night and just went back into playing. And I was like, did we all have the same exact experience? Was that all, we have the friend that downloads Saw, you get to watch all the movies. And then it starts like, here's Texas Chainsaw, here's this, you're chasing this high, um, trying to find all these different movies. What was the first time that you did get that bug to like actually get involved making movies? Because that is a big jump, like to go from consuming to saying, okay, how do they do that? How does Ridley Scott make Alien? How does Joe Dante make this movie? How does Sam Raimi create Evil Dead? That's a big change in perspective. I Alien was like the touch point where I like went deep diving into magazines, Cinefax, Bangoria, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And and it and there was this was before the internet was around. Oh, and, and then leading into the early days of the internet, like you had to really go down crazy rabbit holes and aggressively chase all this kind of information. But that's from that point on, I wanted to know how the sausage was made, typically with like monster movies and stuff. And George Lucas and Spielberg and all these, and Dante and all these influences, the Amblin age in the, in the monster movie age. And, and especially during like practical effects during like the hype and the heyday of mm-hmm. it. Yeah, it was just this weird desire to like learn how everything was done. Have any major aspirations to work in the business oddly enough until because i didn't have the tools around me to mm-hmm. even learn any of this i didn't have video cameras and I, I in a small southern town you just didn't have any of these resources so i didn't figure out like i it wasn't until i picked up like cameras and editing software when i went to school that i i got bit by the filmmaking bug of, oh my God, these are things and tools and I'm playing with them and now I can't do anything else. That's when it was uh, just exploring. That's when I knew that this is all that I can really do. Was school what took you from Florida to LA? I didn't come to LA. I went to Savannah, Georgia, because I was, I, I know I wanted to pursue the arts. I just didn't know where. Yeah, I did what I, in, in the, living in the South, I had like pencil and paper so I drew a lot, was into comics and drawing comics and things like that. And, 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 but I, but without that gear, I didn't know if I had that skill set in me to do it until I started playing around with the equipment. So I went to Savannah College of Art and Design just to pursue arts and do different studies and just see where I wanted to go. That was what it was all about, was finding finding myself and what like what career path I wanted to take but like freshman year when I went in and st- picked up a camera for the first time and learned Final Cut Pro and Avid I was like all right this is it <laughs> yeah yeah when I when I hear you tell your story usually you're starting with LA moving there getting your first work and how did that kind of all fall into place because it's hard enough to break into the industry when you already are connected, you know, when you already are in a place like LA that's hyper competitive, but like moving there from the other side of the country with no connections, like how did you go about forming that relationship with Daniel working on that first documentary? Like how did that all fall into place? So the, I actually, I wish I had moved out to LA way sooner. I always feel like I'm just like, I, I'm a late bloomer and I hit, I arrive at things mm. way too late. I've um, done that as uh, opposed to film school. 
like just come and I started done, I would have done a year or two of film school and then I would have moved out to LA okay. had I not done that. I stayed all four years in film school and then I kicked around the South for two years after that because I didn't know where I wanted to move. I didn't want to move to LA originally. Uh, so I visited New York and LA and Chicago and stuff, trying to figure out where it would be the best place to go. And then just, you know, arrived at the conclusion, like, well, LA is the only place to go for my, for my line of work. Cause I also pursued it with very realistic expectations. I didn't, uh, a lot of the big wigs and the people who are in positions of power in Los Angeles are people who were born into the industry. A lot of people who work in the industry have parents who worked in the industry when they have that leg up. And I came in with nothing, with no connect, zero connections. I knew that as much as I liked filmmaking, directing, all that kind of stuff, that, that I wasn't going to be able to make a living at it. So I needed something else in the industry to support that while I pursue that. And editing, I figured out I was really good at. And so, okay, this is a high in demand job that I can go do. So my express goal was wherever I moved was to make my living as an editor. Cause I knew that's how what yeah. paid the bills, N like getting, making a living as a director. Nobody makes a living directing anymore. Uh, unless you're like one of the, the elite one name on one hand. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Nobody else does. It's like acting, you know, directing and acting are the sort of the same things. Like, oh, it's almost impossible to make a living at it. You have to have some sort of support. So yeah, I, I moved out here pursuing editing and working on like independent directing at the same time. So I had moved out when I moved out to LA because I was a nerd and hanging out online a lot with fellow horror fanatics. I got roped into this old, this failed enterprise called the horror channel, which a whole mm. bunch of us got sucked into that sort of basically led to a website to a channel that never launched but that website was like doing journalism stuff. So I was like working in journalism, writing reviews and doing interviews and stuff like that. Stuff I didn't really like doing or had no aspirations for, but it was a good way to meet people and like connect. And so that way, and I was doing on the side, I had purchased, I had racked up credit card debt buying a Mac computer so I could edit from home. Mm. Basically, I was doing internships and working crappy jobs at like Toys R Us and setting up like whatever I could get to, to make money. And then through like the journalism thing, I started cutting actor like demo reels from home for actors. There was people like David Hess, who I was like, uh, I think he was my first client. So I, I started doing like making, you know, what I could cutting actors demo reels together and moving into like local TV commercials and just doing whatever weird odd jobs that I could until a friend of mine who was a fellow journalist, Stacey Lane Wilson, had recommended me to Dan Ferens, who was working on a documentary at the time called His Name Was Jason, which is about Friday the 13th. So I got on board with him on that to edit like bonus feature material for for that release. And the documentary didn't go so well. And, and Dan and I were I was on Dan's side through that experience and was and and the two of us came out the other end going like you want to work together and so we spent years doing behind the scenes bonus features for uh blu-rays and dvds uh what, what was so, so miserable like, about crystal lake memories was it just a lot of tinkering from the people producing it or what what was what went so wrong with that 
I don't want to go into the details, but yeah, there was fine. just a lot of conflicts and stuff. Sure. And at the end of the day, I don't, I think Crystal Lake memories, which it was like a lot of that was refashioned into mm-hmm. was more along the lines of what he wanted to do. But it was like, it, the, just the time crunch in general was horrible, was horrendous. Sure. But it was neat to be in that world and finally do stuff with in, with horror and meet all the Friday the 13th people and stuff like that. And that, the good thing that came out of that was it repelled, propelled the two of us into yeah. documentary making. And that led to Never Sleep Again and us basically becoming this sort of like independent entity. And for those final years of really great blu-ray bonus content it's a dying thing now mm-hmm. scream factory and a couple other ones are still in the in the game but we were just doing that i was making my living for years doing documentary stuff and that's how never sleep again came about because i told dan i was like we don't need anybody else mm-hmm. you know that we've got this nightmare on elm street remake coming out why don't we just do it ourselves and so we did we just took together all our resources and did that and made this behemoth of a thing right. and when it came out like we didn't have any idea what to expect and that was the thing that really changed our lives yeah at the well, time. So- yeah both of them i mean crystal lake memories and never sleep again are both kind of seminal it's not debated i don't think like those are the two definitive horror documentaries like i, I don't think i've ever seen someone say they didn't like them. I'm sure if I scoured Letterboxd, I could find them. But for the most part, <laughs> everybody who's a horror fan, even people that don't necessarily like Friday 13th or even aren't the biggest, like those documentaries, just as from a filmmaking perspective, are super fascinating. And it's, and for a four hour plus documentary, it rockets by. It's crazy. Like pitching it to somebody is the hardest part. Okay. Hey, do you want to watch uh, this happened with my wife? I, who's not a huge horror fan. I was like, Hey, there's this documentary three hours long about Friday 13th. What? And then we get 10 minutes in and she's I'm watching like, it's super, yeah. super interesting filmmaking. And was that something like when you first started working on those, were, were you guys being commissioned to create a lot of stuff like that? And then decided, Hey, let's do this on our own with Never Sleep Again, or was it something where all of those were, let's go shoot it and then pitch it to an Anchor Bay or to, you know, fill in the blank, whoever it would be? Yeah, we were going as, now my memory is a little jumbled because it all blurs together. But well, because you made a thing like Never Sleep Again, your brain is permanently probably damaged of some section I, of it. <laughs> that documentary damn near killed me. But as I remember it, we were doing Friday the 13th like bonus features for Paramount for a year. We spent a couple of years doing those, doing the entire series for their releases. And and that's like over time. Yes. That's what we were doing. Cause I remember specifically like Paramount were shipping boxes of, of uh, film reels, like from their archives to my apartment. So I think we worked on for two years on all of those movies. That's how I was making my living. And then when, you know, the opportunity, we were talking about pitching an Elm Street documentary, but nobody right. was interested. And so I, then that's, and that when we came up with the idea of let's just do it and then sell it after the fact. So it was a very scrappy gorilla thing. And when we started out, we didn't have anybody involved except for Heather Langenkamp. 104 interviews later, <laughs> we right. had this four hour thing that we had never really set out to make, but it just became that as we were making it. 
do you wish like looking back, probably don't want to return to it at all, but do you wish going back that you would have been able to include more from the remake or do you wish that? No, it was a very conscious decision not to really talk about the remake and I'm glad we didn't. And there's, and I don't think I'd really, I don't think the remake is really remembered much at all these days. I don't know if it'd be worth going back to do anything specifically on that. And Nightmare on Elm Street's sort of been in, in limbo ever since. And one day it'll come back in some form. These franchises. I think sooner rather than later, there'll be something because it's been too long. And I'm one of the, please don't hang out, but I'm one of the people that I have fond opinions about the remake, which (laughs) I say through gritted teeth, but one, that was actually my first Nightmare on Elm Street movie, which is throws you through a weird loop because that to me, it's the same thing. I was just talking, I interviewed Joe Lynch Friday and I was like saying, my introduction to Texas Chainsaw was Platinum Dunes. Jason Voorhees was, no, Jason Voorhees, I watched part four, I believe, first or part three. Nightmare on Elm Street, like my introduction to the series was the remake, which I liked enough to go back and watch the originals. And now my favorites jumble every time I watch the series two or three or <laughs> one or, and, uh, but yeah, I, like, I have fond thoughts about it, but I think it was, regardless of thoughts on the film, it had an impossible task because New Nightmare was so close to that time and was such a good send-off from Wes Craven, anything would have been just target practice. Like even if they had done yeah. the the right thing, whatever that would be, if they had been not faithful enough, they would have got killed. If they would have been too faithful, they would have got killed. And we only know Robert in that. It's not like Friday 13th where it's, okay, you have Kane or you have CJ Graham or you have Halloween. We've got 30 different timelines. It doesn't even matter now. Pick your own version you want to watch it was an untouchable kind of franchise at that point that was specifically him. So it's a tricky place to come in from. I'm curious not to derail the whole conversation. Where would you like to see it go if they did bring it back or remake it? Peter Jackson had a really great concept that I I'm think so is glad right. <laughs> yeah. I think that, I think his concept of Freddy is a decrepit old thing that like people, the kids on Elm Street beat the shit out of in their dreams. Like, and then, and then having him like manage to accidentally kill one of these kids and get enough power back to come back for one more round. I think that would be the movie that I want to see. I haven't seen his script or read it or anything like that, but I think that's the concept to do one more with Robert England Mm -hmm. and do it as him as old Freddie Mm-hmm. would be obviously he can't do the whole freaking and he can't be dream warriors freddy anymore but i think you could go back to that original sort of like lurker with an aged freddy like basically coming back to life like if you were to do another one that's what i would personally do mm-hmm. is go back to that concept because i think that's a great idea but that's as far as where to take it from there it's hard because it's like it's difficult to do to do a really good Freddy Krueger without Robert England. He's that's it's not yeah. a character. It's not a role that's easily replaceable. It's so synonymous with him. I think he could probably have one more left in him. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's uh, these stuff is always entangled and legal and development. Yeah, usually they they just run out the clock trying to figure out what to do. Friday the 13th the same way. It's, who knows when anything's going to come from that. So I, I don't know. such personally. a bummer because that's a series I'd love to see rip. Like I make one of those a year, like Blumhouse or somebody just make a Friday the 13th every year. You win some, lose some, just crank them out. Like, I think that would be, I think that'd be awesome. Be but, great. Yeah. Yeah. 
no, to- totally agree with ne- uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street because that was the one section of the documentary where like that there was a couple ideas that were mentioned and I can't remember any of them, which speaks to probably how good some of the ideas were because there were some freaky, weird ideas that they had. But Peter Jackson's idea, you know, of that, I think is so smart. And, and I would have loved to have seen him do that during that time period, like off the heels of a dead alive or brain dead, depending what part of the world you're from. I think that would have been fascinating yeah. to see what he would have done with no holds barred kind of movie like that. It would have been great. I, but yeah, like as far as the Elm street franchise in general, like if it stays dead personally, I'm fine with it. I don't yeah. feel like, I don't feel like these franchises need to be exist as IPs forever. I think it's fine. If this is all we have, great fine make yeah. another franchise i'd rather see more franchises birthed than dragged stuff out but it's, it's different when it's like the universal monsters are different there's more timeless mm-hmm. figures that go way way back even before filmmaking was born so yeah i think there's i think there's way better things than that you could do than make another texas chainsaw movie <laughs> really <laughs> I don't like if people want to make them and get, make a lot of money off of God bless them. But it's personally, it's not something that I have any interest in seeing. You're not going to, you're never going to top Toby Hooper's original anyway. Before we transition out of this, I wanted to ask just really quick, like where did the stop motion, like kind of animation come in? Cause obviously you had these kind of claymation pieces for Freddy Krueger in the transition. Was that something you brought to the table? Was that from Daniel? Cause I know like slow poisoner has a little bit of that stop motion claymation kind of animation as well where did that come from was that was that from you i, for, was that- I forget wh- i honestly don't remember what kicked it off i just remember we met this guy michael granberry and and he was referred to us through a friend who worked on robot chicken and mm-hmm. we were like at some point i and i don't remember where the genesis of it was but dan and i were like it would be so cool to have stop motion segments so Dan found this guy, went to his house and he said, oh, I had already, I already built the Elm Street house for you. And it, it was there. He already built it like almost overnight Jeez. and presented it. And then he started churning out like a shot a day for it. And we were just like, our jaws were on the floor. It was like, this guy is incredible. Same guy who did the hot, wor- wor- hot rod worm music video. Yeah. I've worked with him. I've been, I've, I don't think I can afford him now, but he, but he's gone on to do all sorts of incredible work. And he's just, Michael Granberry's just a genius. I can't shower him with enough praise because he's just what he does. And the time that he, that it takes him to do it is it's just unbelievable. Well, taking the pivot from behind the scenes of all these different films to stepping into the role of working on scripted formatted films and television after doing never sleep again the mic drop moments of that and crystal lake memories all these different films did you just feel like you did what you wanted to do as far as behind the scenes stuff it was time to do some original work like you mentioned yeah i i it was cool to do all that stuff but it's the it doesn't pay well and it doesn't do it doesn't do a good job of keeping the lights on unless you're you, sure. you get like hit with a ridiculous amount of work and at the, after a while, you just get sick of talking heads. You get mm-hmm. sick of cutting together people's faces. And you're like, all right, fuck this. I just, I want to move on and like really do, do stuff that I'm like super passionate about. Not that those weren't passion projects. After you've done like your 
37th Scream Factory bonus feature. It's sort of like, all right, this is becoming old hat and I'm bored now. I did it a co- uh, like up until even a couple of years ago. Like I think the last thing that I did was like, I would in between seasons of television when I had nothing going on, if something like that fell in my lap through Michael Felcher's company or whatever, mm-hmm. I would be happy to just cut a few things or take on a few things. The last thing I, I did was, I think the Vampire's Blu-ray a couple of years ago for Scream Factory helped produce and cut some of those and went up to Vegas and interviewed James Woods and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was a like, yeah, it was a neat thing to just do on the side until, and, but at this point I'm like, it's, I want to pursue other things for sure. And there's only like a couple of games in town that do it. And a couple of guys who still do this kind of work and they do it brilliantly mm-hmm. and, and, hats off to them like i want to see them keep going and doing this stuff but yeah like as far as like like documentaries go not a whole not super interested in them especially once you fall in the world of scripted stuff it's okay this is where i wanted to be all along so more than happy to let other people do that kind of stuff yeah getting into the scripted the scripted stuff like i gotta talk about tales of halloween because i think that's i was watching your segment this means war just last night revisiting it and <laughs> it's it's such a well-directed like it's a really short super sharp well-directed segment where'd the idea for that kind of come in and how'd you how'd you knock that out because i'm assuming you didn't have a ton of time or a ton of money to put that together what was the process that led to that no yeah now in retrospect we had to shave it way down from what it originally was because we didn't have the time or the money mostly time to, to make it what it, what we had conceived it to be, but because mm-hmm. building two giant houses up with right. yard displays in two days is, oh, that's tough. But I think the genesis was we had a couple ideas. Skip and I were working together as a team at the time, and we were kicking around ideas. And then the idea hit me to have the idea of, of competing, of neighbors competing with their Halloween displays. Right. And that's something that, the producers liked and then skip came up with the idea of what if they're old school versus new school what if it's like universal like Forey ackerman famous monsters universal lover versus like the rob zombie fango generation so those two things melded together and that's what birthed (laughs) this means war to like address the schism that kind of like schism between the old monster kids and the new monster kids which you still see like the like the older, like the famous mon- monsters generations, like, like those guys, like the Joe Dantes and the Bill Malones and all those guys, they're their own tight knit mm-hmm. crew. And people of my generation, the Freddies, the Jasons, the Chuckies, all those, like they're, that's its own weird yeah. click. So yeah, it's, and there's a lot of debate, friendly debates that come up from time to time still. Right. So, well, especially uh, now Rob Zombie's tackling an old school horror property and a lot of people don't know what to think. <laughs> there's a lot of mixed emotions surrounding that right now, but it's the perfect blend. I think of those, those two personality types. I'm, I'm hoping he does it great. I know he's a massive monsters fan and if he can marry the two types together, yeah. perfect. Well, the pictures and images and stuff look amazing, the sets and costumes, and I'm excited for it. And I think, I know Zombie's a polarizing uh, figure, but I think when he hits, he hits it. 
out of the park. Yeah. There's a lot of good, uh, a lot of good films out there. So curious to see how it comes out, but speaking of directors working in an anthology with 11 other directors, how did you guys survive and not end up killing each other by the end of the project? Survive or (laughs) we're all still friends and we all still keep in touch, but it was an exhausting experience. (laughs) It was just, uh, and everyone was in their own corner you know, focused the, the hard, the diff, really difficult thing was that it was like one shoot after the uh, one segment after the other. So there wasn't a lot of time. There was no like days off in between. And so our shoot was scheduled later. And so some mm-hmm. of our key crew members had just done like seven other shorts. So they, a lot of people were like super burned out at that point. Yeah. And that was really difficult. And yeah, it was just, again, it's like that was done in such a fast haze. I was taking di- literally days off because I was working on season one of The Flash as an assistant editor, making my my living on that. Right. And I was literally taking a couple days off to go shoot that and then go back to work. So it was like at the time I, I had I had a kid, a newborn kid. And it was like, it was just so, there's so much all at once. Like, I just remember that being a very stressful period of my life. And when I got, had gotten through Tales of Halloween, I was like, just more happy that I got out through the other end of it, as opposed to I'm happy, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm happy for the experience, happy to have done it, learned a lot doing it. But it was definitely one of those experiences you come out the other end and just like, all right, I survived this, as opposed to being like, yay. Um, is, is there so, ever a project where you can come out of it going, yay, that was awesome? Or do you think all of any type of filmmaking thing you take on is going to leave with, okay, I need some time to have retrospect to really see it for what it is. You're never not going to feel that way about me. It's everyone will tell you it's, it's not art is never finished. It's abandoned. You know, it's just at what point are you happy with it being abandoned? So you're never going to be set. Like, that's the thing. You're always going to be chasing that itch. You're never going to be satisfied. And let's face it. If you are completely satisfied, you're doing something wrong. You have the wrong mindset. Because there's because confidence is the death of creativity. I think when you're content with something, when you're if you're fully content with something, it's there's no point anymore. It, it takes away the drive. So yeah, I've never, I've never, wa- I, but you do have experiences where you're like, you walk away and you're like, I had a good experience and I'm happy with the finished product. Right. So uh, you that is totally possible. Like on the show that I'm working on right now which is called Legends of Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I like the last couple episodes that I've done. I've had that sort of mm. reaction of after you're done beating yourself up in post for what you could have done better. And that once, and then it gets taken out of your hands and other people take it home. But it's, and it's some, the, that's like working on that show is like something that I can look back on and go, okay, I'm happy with my work. And I had a great, wonderful time doing it and learned a lot. And this is great. And I can't wait to do it again. Yeah. So that's that's when things are super positive and and, and you feel just overall like a sense of accomplishment. Yeah, we're working on shows. I, I wanted to ask this before we move into our random round here, like working on shows like Flash or these other DC properties, which are it's incredible with the budgets I'm sure they have on CW shows, like some of the effects on the flash are crazy and it's pretty wild. Like the scale I couldn't have imagined growing up, like having King shark brought to life in a show. <laughs> like it's, it's crazy that we're in this time period, at least not well, not be a guy in a rubber suit that doesn't look very good on a, on an old TV show, but working on shows like that, that are, you've got very 
definitive source material. You've got showrunners who've already created the look of the show. Do you feel the ability to put like your own creative stamp onto that, whether you're directing like Legends of Tomorrow, whether you're doing editing on projects like The Flash, do you feel like it's creatively fulfilling in the same way, even though it's not necessarily your own original kind of IP? Yeah, it's cre- it's definitely creatively fulfilling. They do in editorial, depending on the show, maybe a little less. Right. But because you're working with all this, all these IPs and a lot of people or you're answering to a lot of people, but you still put your creative stamp on it. You still find the tone. And there's plenty of, you know, TV that I've edited in DC that I'm like very happy and can Mm -hmm. see my stamp on the finished product. More so on Legends of Tomorrow, which is a very freeing TV show than a normal comic book show. That's sort of its own weird thing that kind of isn't beholden to as many rules and regulations and they kind of just let you go nuts but yeah some of my directing for tv it's weird because you're not you don't have the same sort of ownership over an episode that you would do if you were directing a movie that you started yourself Mm -hmm. like you're the odd person out coming into a machine that's already moving and can kind of function with or without you But when you adapt to that environment and you have all these crazy cool tools at your disposal and you're, and if you're lucky enough to be on a show that will leave you alone and, or trust you to just do your thing, you can come away with a tremendous amount of like creative fulfillment, totally like wonderful. This is the way that I want it to be. And you're well supported by everybody. You're not, you you have a chain that you have to answer to. But if that chain of people is cool, it's, it makes it, it just makes the experience so great. So yeah. No, that's awesome. But but different, very, they're very different things, but also not, if that makes any sense from doing a television show or doing your own sort of indie movie. There's a lot that's so similar and so many tools that you take with you from one to the other and other times, like just completely complete night and day. Um, but I can't like at this point, I can't say that one is better than the other, to be honest. I'm happy doing both. Yeah. Well, I I really appreciate you sharing some insights. I'm going to move us here into our rapid round here. And uh, these are never end up being very rapid. So I'll try to move us through quick because there's a lot of, a lot of thought provoking questions here, but uh, first of all, what is a film that you think is the best representation of you as a creator? Wow. I, I, if I, I can't specifically say one film, but if I, I would just say stuff like Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, Brain Dead, those are movies that the, were the Raimi Jackson and Joe Dante, whimsical, anarchic creature features are super in my wheelhouse. That speaks most to my sensibility and sense of humor mm. and kind of like this, I guess, I don't know. It's just, it just pushes all the happy buttons in my soul. But whenever, yeah, just getting like, that's sort of the stuff that connected with me deep down the most as far as, Hey, I would love to do something like this. I can't, but I can't point to anything like one specific one. That's too hard. What is a movie that your fans would be surprised that you enjoy? So people who are know you as the guy who loves evil dead and dead alive and, and all these sorts of films, is there a movie that you love that just totally comes out of the blue? I can't believe that. One of my top five favorite movies is Defending Your Life by Albert Brooks. Uh, that's crazy. Like, that just got mentioned Friday by Joe. Yeah. That was, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. He mentioned that being a favorite. 
Yeah, that's one of my favorite movies. And I love Albert Brooks in general. But yeah, that's that's not something that you would probably expect your average Fangoria reader to pull out and go, <laughs> right. hey. What is the best decade of film history? It's so cliche. The 70s were probably the undisputed king. I don't think I don't think there's anything better than the 70s. A lot of people are tempted to say the 80s because the yeah. 80s were great. But and that's where all the practical art forms reached their peak. So that's an easy thing to say, but that's only through the lens of nostalgia. Right. If you want to talk about quality and craftsmanship and influence and the films being as good as they've ever been, it's 100% the 70s. Yeah. That's when it's like all the Mavericks took over, re like changed all the rules. The, if you read Easy, Rider, Ra Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, that's the book that completely defines that era. Yeah. That's the best filmmaking, I think, period. 80s as great as it was, and we got a lot of magic out of the 80s, and it may have left a, a bigger impression on us, that's the beginning of where it got, all that started to get commercialized. Yeah. And when it, the, sort of, it, the bigger, glossier MTV generation that kind of has continued through up until now. But filmmaking, 100%, the 70s is the like definitive era of... Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah. yeah, no, that's why I like asking the best because it makes people go, they, they want to say 80s because I think it's everybody's default because it is like Spielberg, but you think about all those films, but like the 70s, even Spielberg, I would argue Spielberg's best films were the 70s, you know, like the movies he was putting out during that time, Close Encounters, Jaws, it was it was a golden time and it is where things were able to push to the limits in a way. I, I do understand Tarantino's argument. Like the eighties is fifties part two in a lot of ways. Like it started getting very commercial and a lot of sanitized movies near the end, but it, it's hard. It's hard. Like I would say late seventies to, to early eighties would be my jam right there. I know you say you don't like remakes, but if you were given the green light to remake any film, what would you choose and why? And I'll expand this question and say, if you could make a remake or a sequel to any film, uh, what would you choose and why? Oh, man. What would I like to remake? I had films that I, had, that I, wanted, that I had wanted to remake, but then they were remade and then remade <laughs> back. So I don't... A remake since you've decided to, to do it. Yeah. Right. I always want to do a sequel to Killer Clowns. Or if somebody said, hey, what, if you could have any sequel in the world, I would pick an alien movie, obviously. Mm. But remake, that's a tough one. And it's, I feel five years ago, I would have had one like right off the top of my head that I could have given you. I think it's tricky because we tend to think of our favorite movies, but then it's, well, why would I remake that? <laughs> I think yeah. it would be more something you watch for either could have been or, or with technology now or with knowing what we know now or taking into this time period, we could do something with it. But yeah. Yeah. I, I like, I would definitely remake like an older, old, mm -hmm. much older movie. It might be cool. It, it would be cool to do a modern cabinet of Dr. Caligari. That could be, there have been, but they didn't. Cause I guess anybody could do one if they really wanted to. Right. But I think if you were given Tim Burton level resources to do a modern reimagining of Dr. With the production Cal design and really go balls out. Yeah. Go nuts. Go full Guillermo del Toro on that thing. I think yeah. it'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that's a really interesting choice. 
yeah, I'm glad I'm glad we pushed through because I was going to just be like, oh, well, you don't have one. But I think that's a really interesting, interesting <laughs> choice. You, you could probably do a lot too, even with CG now and stuff too. There's probably a lot of cool optical things you could do that would be really interesting. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you'd give to an aspiring filmmaker who's listening to this? No pressure, but this could change their yeah. life. <laughs> don't be afraid to fail. Cause you're going to fail again and again and again and again, some often for years or decades. But if you stay the course, it's totally worth it. Thank you so much for joining me uh, on the show. I really do appreciate it and taking some time. It's, it was awesome. Love getting to chat with you and a uh, huge fan of your work in the documentary space. And like I said, even, even your segments and things, I'm excited to see what you work on next. And uh, maybe you could do your, your, your remake pretty soon. <laughs> So. You never know. That's the weird thing about this town. You never know what the hell it's going to throw at you. Well, you so. just officially announced it. So this is out in the world we now. Go. It's going to happen. <laughs> but awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.